Hi, I'm Jason Scott. I'm a mortgage broker with TMG, the mortgage group, and the host of I Love Edmonton Real Estate. My guests today are Steve Carrillo and Mark Berry of Magnum Mortgage. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you. Thank you. So, Steve, you've been in and around the Edmonton real estate market for many, many years. Can you give us just a little bit of your history? Yes, I have been around for a long time. It dates me, and I hate to do that, but nonetheless, yes, I started in real estate in late 70s, as a matter of fact, my first license. So I've lived through the ups and downs of three major retractions in the real estate world. The most significant that I recall is in the 80s when the National Energy Program was announced and Alberta went into a very, very large retraction. I've been a realtor with Remax. During the recession time, I found myself more successful than during normal times. I took advantage of recessionary period to create financial independence for my clients. Okay, and how did you do that? Well, I believe that everyone should own a home to live in and four more to rent out. And I felt that that was an important element in their financial security package. When they get older, if they have a cash flow that would help support anything else that they might have achieved, I felt that was a really good objective. And so my practice was based around that theory. And to own revenue real estate, I thought was important. To own several of them is even more important. And during that period in the 80s, between 1983 and 1989, the six-year period, I sold over a 1,000 homes in Edmonton, over nearly 400 in one year. And just for perspective, those are huge, huge numbers. I mean, I think your average realtor is pretty happy if they do like 20 sales a year, right? Perhaps. So I was doing more than one, one sale per day. Yeah. yeah, amazing. So my history in the real estate world has been active and dates back a long time. So now Magnum Mortgage is what we call a private lender. Yes. Okay. Private lenders are basically in quotations, and I don't like to use this disparagingly, but lenders of last resort, typically in the sense that you're solving a serious problem for a borrower who can't get traditional financing in the A space or with traditional banks. Yeah, that's correct. But you have to remember that private lending is not new. No, no, Private lending goes back to Roman times. Mm -hmm. It is not unusual that one citizen would go to another citizen and then borrow money. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's standard. Even in modern times, farmers could not get loans on farmland from anyone. So if one farmer wanted to buy farmland from another one, he would simply ask for a loan, and there's a private loan origination right there. So it's been around a very long time. Right, for sure. And it's my thought, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that there is a growing place for private lenders, especially in, say, the last five or six years, as the government increasingly tightens qualifying rates and qualifying policies and whatnot for lenders. That's true. And Mark, my partner, faces that on a daily basis. And Mark, maybe you can speak to that and the changes that have happened lately. Yeah. Thanks, Steve. I'd like to kind of 
say that I've been with Magnum now coming on six years and I've been able to kind of work hand in hand with Steve and it's been amazing to be able to kind of pick his brain and get an idea of Edmonton real estate from the 70s to the 80s to 2000 and then kind of when private lending started with Magnum in 2003 and I had actually switched from traditional lending I was actually at TMG and I started originally at CIBC doing bank financing and prior to 2017 I'd never even done a private deal Mm -hmm. and I would say now I see incredible opportunities in private lending for a variety of reasons and the biggest one is certainly qualification. That stress test that was brought on in, let's say what? It was brought on in 2016 for the insured space. Yeah. So, and the stress test is basically whatever your mortgage rate is, you add 2% to it. And we do the debt service calculations off of that to see what a person qualifies for. With interest rates today in the high 5% to low seven percent depending on what type of property it is and whatnot it makes qualifying extremely difficult so private lending and our private rates so our rates were substantially higher than a lending now they're not quite so much and so that's really where the growth has happened especially in the last two years has been as a banks that qualifying rate has increased dramatically making the amount of income that you have to have verified income and that's the other thing too is that traditional lending has tightened on verified income as well on what they consider income and so that verified income level that threshold that you need to make to qualify for a three hundred thousand dollar mortgage is substantially higher in 2023 than it was in 2019 and 2021. And so that pushes these borrowers that can't qualify or don't have the income to qualify under the stress test. They might they qualify for making the payments, but they don't qualify for the stress test. And so it just kind of falls back onto us. And so borrowers that would have been bank borrowers just two years ago are now private borrowers. Right, yeah. So are you seeing the credit quality of, of your clients going up? Like historically, someone said to me, hey, I just got discharged from a bank or consumer proposal, I don't have established credit, or my credit score is very poor, right? They wouldn't have a hope of getting approved at a a traditional lender, and they would automatically go to the private space. What are you seeing now on the credit side of things? The vast majority of our files are actually funded to borrowers who have AA and even AAA credit can very easily have excellent credit. I've seen credit scores in the 800s, okay, which is absolutely phenomenal. It's perfect credit. But when it comes down to that qualifying, they may not claim, there are several reasons why they might come to private. One is qualifying, they're not claiming enough income. Maybe it's short term. They have only been self-employed for a year or two. Mm-hmm. They don't have the history of self-employed income that's required in the A space. Another big one would be investment properties. Investment properties are getting tougher and tougher to buy 
as that qualifying rate comes up and as traditional lenders have scaled back the number of mortgages, what's referred to as number of doors, that they'll be able to finance. So you could make fantastic money, have perfect credit, have lots of down payment, but you've maxed out the number of doors that you can buy. Right. And that's typically four. Right. Or perhaps you want to do a flip, yeah. right? You buy a distressed property, you renovate it, you sell it for a profit. Typical lenders won't lend on that whatsoever, mm-hmm. right? I'm assuming you're playing a major role in that. Absolutely. I would say the last, just in the last month, we've probably done two of those, maybe three. There's an expectation in Alberta, and I share that expectation that in the next coming one, two, and even five years, that Alberta will be leading the nation in growth, in real estate pricing growth. Well, we haven't been for the last decade or plus, 15 years, right? So we're due. Yeah, we're due. Steve, why do you think it's taken so long for prices to get going again? Say, well, definitely after 2007, 8, when prices crashed, and then we had a mini run-up in 2014, and then been flat since, regardless of what oil prices have done. Well, a lot of people may not like to hear this, but I believe that Alberta has been separated from the federal government for a very long time. We just don't want to admit it. So what do you mean by separated? Well, Alberta's economy is based on agriculture and oil and gas. And we have been stymied in every direction with respect to not production, but sales of our natural resource. It is perplexing to me why a nation as big as Canada with reserves that Alberta has, fourth largest oil reserve in the world, why we do not have pipelines across this nation supplying fuel for heating for automobiles to our own citizens. Why is that so? And never mind international. Uh, never mind international. <laughs> look at uh, Europe right now, or look at Germany coming to us for for liquid natural gas when Russia's pipelines were in jeopardy, and we did not have LNG plants, and yeah. yet they were proposed. So, what I'm saying is, I think the biggest detriment to us is the federal position on distribution of Alberta's natural resources. Mm-hmm. That is loosening up. That's changing little by little. And with an election coming, and this has been historically the change when we have a new government elected, maybe a conservative government in Ottawa, and particularly now, we're seeing signs that if there were to be a change, and I personally hope there will be, that it will completely change the outlook on the oil and gas industry. Mm -hmm. And I think that will create an enormous, and it has in the past, created an enormous influx of people, jobs, high-paying jobs, Mm -hmm. and prosperity to Alberta. Yeah. We have been seeing a lot of people moving to Alberta from Ontario and BC specifically, and largely because, you know, in those two provinces, many, many people have given up on ever owning a home there because of the outrageous prices. It seems that Calgary is taking off already well in advance of Edmonton. Is that pretty typical based on... It's always been the case. And why is that? We're not sure. We thought that Edmonton being the, let's call it the blue collar or the worker society, Mm -hmm. when the 
major plants are being built, the labor force comes out of Edmonton. The engineering and the financing seem to come from Calgary. So that leads, that's what starts the process. Maybe the mountains have something to do with it, but Calgary's always had an edge on us. And they're about $100,000 difference in pricing right now. Right. And their activity, their sales activity is very, very healthy compared to ours right now. Absolutely. Yeah. So when do you think the things will improve here? Well, if I were to venture a guess, within a year and a half. We've been waiting 17 years for another, let's call it a mini boom, but I think sustained growth will come very quickly. And you know, Jason, I do want to mention that, as I mentioned earlier, my real estate history and sales, about 1% of those sales were actually financed through a bank. That means the purchaser went to his own bank and arranged financing. Everything else was done through a mortgage broker. Yeah, right. All of it. <laughs> Thank you for the plug. <laughs> yeah, no, but it's, it's the truth. Yeah. A mortgage broker was, it couldn't have happened without yeah. a mortgage broker. Now, historically, like when you look back on your career, what percentage do you think of those purchases and whatnot were private lending? Where either a private individual or the seller of the real estate or a mortgage investment corporation was involved? It would be very high. It would be 75%. Really? Or so, I would say so. Is that because of the rental property factor where you were historically working? or Well, we didn't have the restrictions as to the number of properties you could own. But I think the common sense of the purchase was more prevalent in the common man, in the private lender. The common sense of it to the banks wasn't as clear. I think if you can... If you can buy a property and you're capable of managing it and keeping it up and have a second property that one day will be paid for by a perfect stranger and your tenant, and you'll have less than 10 of them in an entire lifetime before the mortgage is liquidated. Mm-hmm. I mean, so you might have 10 move outs and move ins in the history between purchase and clear title. That's not a lot of effort on your part. Not in the grand scheme of things, no. no. And if you had two or three or four or five homes, what a wonderful asset that is towards your retirement and financial independence. Mark, you talked about interest rates at Magnum and other private lenders being relatively close to what you know a lot of chartered banks are right now. You know, So as an example, a first position mortgage, as of today, what do you think your rates would be? The loan to value or what's basically the amount of mortgage relative to the value of the property dictates the rate quite a bit, but we're starting at about 10%. So we're about 10 to 11%. Now, a couple things with us is that typically our terms are 12, 24, or 36 months, okay. and our mortgages are fully open. Right. So these are designed to be short-term loans. It's filling a gap until a person's circumstances change or their use of that property changes. They sell it or whatever, right? That's exactly correct. And so we really here at Magnum, private lending is one of those great places where the lenders themselves can set the terms and set the rules. And so that's most private lenders are not dictated by federal OSFI or federal regulations that come down from the federal government. So in our space, and that's been a real key for us is to say, we really want to be a bridge from where you are to where you need to get to from a borrower standpoint. We want to 
say, okay, here's the situation or here's the place that you're in. And let's put a plan together for the next 12, 24, 36 months. And so that's why it's been key for us to be an open mortgage lender, which means that if at any time during that term, you've reached your goal, whether it be a fixing, flipping the property, you sold the property, maybe you got an inheritance, whatever that situation is, when you've been able to resolve that issue, if you want to pay us out early, great, wonderful. We're in the problem solving business and there are lots of problems out there. We can take that money and fix an, another problem with it. So where do you get your money to lend out? Well, I was just thinking about that, Jason. I think it's important to note that we are different than most private lending organizations in that we're not a mortgage investment corporation. All of our loans are direct loans from direct lender. So an individual person will come in who's accumulated some wealth and he's looking for another alternative other than the stock market or the bank. And once we can identify the amount of money that he has, we marry that to a loan coming in. That means we'll underwrite a request for financing, we'll check the details, and then we'll match the amount of capital available to that loan. And the lender gets registered on title as just like the bank. If he's in first position, he's in first position or second position lender. So all of our funds come from private individuals rather than a a mixture of syndicated funds. And syndicated means there's more than one person bringing in their money. The money's not going into one big pot to be loaned out. That's right. That's correct. So from a lending point of view, from an investment point of view, you know exactly where your money is going because you get the address of the home, you get the appraised value, you can drive to the property, you can look at it, you can get a good sense of whether you like it and you know exactly where your money is and you know what it's earning and you know the exit strategy before you ever go in it. And obviously the property is more important from the lender's perspective in a private lending situation than what the client is making in terms of income or what their credit is. I mean, we talked about how you're seeing better quality clients, but really the focus is always number one on that security of the property and the inherent value and condition of that property. Is that right? Absolutely. The big risk that you always face in lending is preservation of the principal. So when you go into a private loan, you want to make sure that what you're lending money on can preserve the principal. So in the event of a default, we look at that. What happens if that loan goes into a default? Is there enough equity in that property to perhaps fix it up a little bit, pay a realtor to resell it? And will you recapture your original principal plus the interest that's owed. Right. So, yeah, the property is very important. Right. That's the anchor to it. Now, during COVID, obviously, there was huge income disruption and whatnot for people. Did you see more foreclosures and borrowers getting into trouble? We actually seen less. Why? (laughs) That's counterintuitive. (laughs) It is. So several things that we had seen, there was actually a fair amount of deflationary items happening on a personal finance level. So the price of gas dropped precipitously. People's expenditures went way down in the sense that you didn't eat out. The casinos were closed. Bars were closed. You couldn't travel. So these big ticket items that people were spending money on, you couldn't buy a vehicle if you tried. 
So all of these big ticket items, interest rates dropped massively. So all of the lines, people had lines of credit. The servicing charges on those lines of credit dropped a lot. Their mortgages dropped from 4% down to 2 or 1.5%. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of extra money available. Plus, the government stepped in and many of those, the amount of debt that the government and governments across the board took on, that made the payments much more manageable. We also did have several borrowers who requested and were granted deferrals. Mm-hmm. We weren't doing the six-month thing that the, the federal government was doing. Again, we don't have access to federally regulated and federally available recovery funds. So this was on an individual level, and we were able to offer some borrowers a 90-day reprieve on their payments. Okay, so then the economy's opened up again, inflation's taking off, gas prices are up, food prices are certainly up, price of everything's up. What sort of impact is that having on your borrowers? Since in the last year and a half, during this high inflationary period, and the interest rates moving up and also utilities are a big part of this kind of cost of housing is way higher than it would have been just two years ago. And arrears are higher than they would have been two years ago. They're the highest it's been in three years, but not the highest in history. So there is extra due diligence done on our side to meet the borrowers where they're at and to say we need to come up with a more viable long-term plan. So you can do like interesting solutions for borrowers. So as an example, let's say you've got an older borrower who's maybe just has their Canada pension to live on and their goal is to downsize, but they need to improve the property. You can do things like lending money, reserving a portion of the money that is given to the borrower as basically prepaid mortgage payments. Well, Jason, that's a really good example. As a matter of fact, I can think of an incident when an older couple came to us for financing because the bank would not listen to them. But here's what they wanted to do. They wanted to renovate their lower level of their home, the basement, to create a suite. And the suite would generate revenue. And so they needed interim financing to build that suite. And they had in-laws that would come and live there and generate revenue for them. And, of course, the bank wouldn't look at something like that. Once built, they had the property reappraised, reevaluated, and took a bank loan then at a lesser interest rate and recovered that way. So we stepped in during that one-year period for that to happen, and that's where private lending comes in perfectly. And you can do things like have interest-only payments, as an example, to help out with cash flow or long amortizations, 30 years, 35 years, 40 years. I don't know whether you do that, but it's a possibility, I imagine. When we look at a file, and typically I look at it almost every file that comes in the store, and... I really want to see what a plan is. And one of the keys is payment rehistory. So if you're trying to build credit, it's payments. And tacking on a large payment or a high interest payment can be detrimental to your payment history. We don't want more NSFs on your account. We won't want any delays. So one of the ways I've worked through that is to make payment arrangements where maybe we've held back 50% of the payments. Okay. So if your payment is $1,000, $500 of that every month is held in trust. 
And then you, the borrower, or the borrower would make $500 payments. And so when you go back on your payment history, you've got 12 on-time payments of $500, plus the 1,000 you held, or the 500 you held in reserve. And so from Magnum's perspective, that's helping the client get ready to move on to a different lender. Correct. Traditional lender. Yeah. Our typical goal, we do look at 25 years. That's kind of our standard. We do like to have amortization here. We do like to have a path to pay off this principal. And that's a key point from a borrower standpoint is amortization is an interest reduction method. So interest only and what was referred to as interest reserve or prepaid payments, those are additional interest. That raises the amount of interest payable over the term of the loan. Amortization reduces that. And we actually have a borrower focus here, but we try as much as we can to ensure that there is a principal repayment. Because principal repayment gives you a greater opportunity to move back to the bank. So, because that's one of the keys that the bank is going to have in evaluating your credit worthiness and your ability to take on this mortgage is equity in the property. It's referred to as a loan to value, your income and your credit score. So I want to work with the broker, the what's called a Simity broker, and to say, hey, listen, this is what we estimate needs to happen over the next 12, 24, 36 months to have a better chance of success. And one of those things might be amortization. Paying down the principal, if the loan starts at $100,000 and it ends at eighty five, maybe there's a better chance that that borrower can get paid out or can get a, a bank traditional bank loan. So if people are moving here and we expect the housing market to improve, at least in terms of pricing, from a lending point of view, that's good for Magnum in the sense that house prices reduce the risk versus the money loaned on that property. Would an improving market work against a private lender, though, in the sense that maybe people don't need a private lending? Or is it just there's more transactions, so more opportunities? More transactions, more opportunities. Private lending is not new to people. It's been around a very long time. And it works through depressed times, and it works through very active, aggressive times. So... It fits the bill regardless of what the uh, environment is like. Mm -hmm. The need for capital is kind of like old people. You never run out of borrowers and you never (laughs) run out of old people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's churning the economy, right? It keeps the wheels moving. Absolutely. And if I might touch on that, I've only been through probably one mini accelerated real estate market, but where Edmonton real estate was going up by 30% a year. 2005, 2006. That's right, 2005, 2006. And at that point, all kinds of activity, probably the greatest activity from a number standpoint that Alberta still had to date. And if you had been through that as a buyer, you were not given the opportunity to have a condition for financing. You were not given an opportunity to have condition for property inspections. You had very little for leverage. So you were in a very, very competitively market. I mean, I went to one place and there were 33 offers. I was one of 33. I didn't get that property because I had a condition for financing. I had to. I was in a position where I needed it. So if you, even if you are a buyer of property that has substantial capacity and resources to take on properties, pretty good chance you're going to have to, in a competitive market, if we get back to that, which I believe we will, 
you're going to have to put in unconditional offers. Right, which is dangerous because you may not get financing. Correct. Which is where you come in to save the day. Correct. So that's where private financing comes in and says, hey, I see the situation you're in. You took a chance because you had to to buy this property because that's what the market was doing. And now you have an unconditional offer. The bank has said, no, this financing just doesn't qualify at this time. And you're left scrambling. You have to close on this deal. You have an unconditional offer. So a broker will go through the options with you and there may be few. And one of those options though is certainly going to be private lending. And a private lender can look at a variety of ways of doing this, qualifying. Like you go back to the interest only. Maybe it's an interest only thing. Or best, another huge one is blanketing to your owner occupied. So what does that mean? Yeah. So what that means is maybe you have a different property with some equity in it where blanketing at a bank is not possible. That's only done on the commercial side. But you want to blanket to a private lender can look at it and go, okay, well, you know what? We'll take some of that shared equity from your other properties and blanket across one or two or three properties to kind of get the security that we need, but to get the financing that you need. So the mortgage goes against two or three properties. Correct. Yeah, blanket situation. That's right. And then when you sell one of the properties, obviously that property is released under that mortgage, right? Yeah, that would have to be a question asked to the private lender or Magnum Mortgage of that case Mm -hmm. to say, when you sell that property, is there enough of the proceeds to pay off the complete loan or if it's just partial? So if you are in that that situation, reach out to your broker, reach out to the lender and say, listen, I'm going to have $50,000. I owe a hundred. Will you accept 50 and release one of the blanket properties you had? With Magnum and Magnum's underwriting, we're very comfortable in doing that. The other alternative would be to keep the both. Don't sell either of them, but you've purchased the property that you were under pressure to do because of other competing offers. You closed on that deal because of a private lender stepped in and helped you out. But now you have a year or two years to find long-term financing. Right. And that's huge. Take the pressure off you. You closed the deal. You preserved your down payment, whatever it was, is no longer at risk. You bought the property you wanted, and now you can find better financing because you've got the time to do it. Now, your office is in Sherwood Park. There's a heck of a lot of development happening right in Sherwood Park, as well as to the north on the other side of the Yellowhead Highway. Why do you think Sherwood Park's taking off so much? I've lived here since the 70s. It is a very desirable community. It's a very well-run community. It's won numerous awards for the most beautiful community. It's just a very pleasant place to be. People want to be in the suburbs. A lot of them want to be in the suburbs. I think it's natural time. It's time for its growth. Do you think that growth will outpace Edmonton's growth? I mean, Edmonton has expanded dramatically in the 20 years since I moved here. I think it's a balance. There's always been a bit of a challenge between Sherwood Park and Edmonton from the standpoint of Sherwood Park citizens working in the city of Edmonton, using Edmonton facilities. And the tax base here is very strong because all of the refineries and the heavy industry is in Sherwood Park. I think the Heartland area north of Fort Saskatchewan is in Strathcona County and Sturgeon County. That has a big influence on tax base and keeping taxes low. There are just a lot of factors. I don't think we could point to one specific thing. 
But in general, one would think that in terms of new builds, et cetera, it may lean more towards, say, Sherwood Park than inner city Edmonton, et cetera. Well, the one caveat that I would put to there is traditionally in suburbs, it's single family dwellings, low density housing, which creates that desire to get the house with the white picket fence and the double attached garage and a nice yard for the dog. But the push inside the city in the urban areas is going to be grow up rather than out. And so, whereas the number of units inside of Edmonton will probably go up, the actual square footage might not pace the same amount of growth that Sherwood Park and Strathcona County and the suburbs would do. I think it's just inevitable that Edmonton grows up, that you'll see a lot more high rises, a lot more condos, and a lot more high density housing in the urban areas. And that'll push even more people who can't afford to move out to the suburbs to the low density housing. I get the sense from you, Steve, that you're pretty optimistic as to where the market is going in the next, say, two to five years. I am. Our time is coming. Good times don't last forever. And bad times are not forever either. We've been challenged for many years in Alberta. We're a very industrious, prosperous, hardworking people. And our time is coming. There was once in the late 70s, Alberta real estate, homes in Alberta were more expensive than Toronto. So when you look at it from that perspective, we've got a long, long way to come. <laughs> yes, we do. In terms of values. Yeah. And when you look at what Alberta has to offer the nation in terms of its wealth and the prosperity that it could share with the rest of Canada, Edmonton is sitting right in the heart of it, and our time is coming, and it's getting very close. I'm very optimistic for strong growth. Well, excellent. I think we'll leave it on those notes. Okay. So thanks a lot, guys. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, thank you, thank you very much, time. Jason.